Hi, and thank you for tuning in to listen to Positivity Bias. This podcast is based on the recently published and highly acclaimed book by the same name, written by Mendel Cominson. In it, Rabbi Cominson explores the amazing way in which the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, had a complete bias towards seeing everything in the world in a positive light. The book also points us to the foundational principles and building blocks that we can use to implement this lens of reality into our psyche so that we too can experience positive living. Due to the devastating effects we are living through as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Roar Jewish Learning Institute, or the JLI, has adapted this book into a series of lessons that we will be using for our podcast as episodes. This is Rabbi Sheldon Lipschitz, a JLI instructor in Woodbury, New York, and a rabbi at Town of Oyster Bay Chabad. So sit back and relax as we embark on this wonderful journey together. This series is presented as a merit for Yosef ben Reb Meir HaKoyen Cohen, who passed away on Lagba Emer 5780. 2020. So welcome to episode one of Positivity Bias. In this episode, we'll explore ways in developing the positivity bias. You know, we all know that we are biased towards our children or to our loved ones towards people that, God forbid, we don't love. But we may believe that we are neutral and objective in other areas of our life and the way we see events and history and news. So in an interesting private audience, Mr. Charles Roth, who is the executive director of the National Jewish Post for 29 years, extolled to the Rebbe, in this Yechidus, our publication is independent and completely objective. The Rebbe responded pointedly, independent, perhaps, but objective? There is no such thing. It is humanly impossible to be objective. Every person has a bias of some kind. You know, there's the old joke of two men meeting on the street. So one says, Rappaport, you changed so much. Look at you, you lost weight. You got a facelift. You got a hair transplant. I wouldn't have known it's you. So the other fellow responds, I'm not Rappaport. So the first guy says, look at that. You even changed your name. You know, sometimes the way when we're conditioned to see things one way, It's very hard for us to change and see things another way, even when confronted with facts that challenge our bias. Our beliefs are established through a mix of nature and nurture and free will. We each possess a certain lens that frames and forms the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, and the way we see the world around us. It's simply not possible to erase all traces of our personality 
past experiences, and deeply held beliefs from our observations, our experiences, or our actions. And this is impossible no matter how hard we may try. This frame that we adopt, whether consciously or unconsciously, deeply impacts the way that we perceive reality. This matrix of understanding becomes our operating system, so to speak. It becomes the default mechanism through which we contextualize and react and interpret every event and interaction we experience. If our biases inevitably color the way we interpret and experience the world, it follows that a primary focus of life should be to assess and to reset our biases. So based on this fact, let's try to explore can we adjust and how we should adjust our bias to better serve ourselves and others. The premise of this podcast is the Rebbe's positivity bias, meaning that the default lens or frame through which the Rebbe viewed others and the world was fundamentally positive. Once, point, once I point this out, the Rebbe's positivity bias is impossible to miss. There are countless documented stories, letters, anecdotes, and vignettes from the Rebbe's life and behavior that demonstrate how the Rebbe's positivity bias illuminated every corner of his thoughts and every nuance of his speech and infused his every action, reaction, and interaction with the power of positive living. So let me share with you three examples that illustrate this. So here's story number one. There ever once received a letter from a businessman who in the course of his travels had encountered something that upset him. And so he wrote this to the Rebbe. And this was what this was the disturbing scene that he shared with the Rebbe. He went to visit a community, and there was this man who was participating in a minion. But instead of sitting down to pray, he pulled out a newspaper and was reading a newspaper instead of praying. This blatant display of disrespect was simply more than the businessman could bear. And he wrote a letter to the Rebbe in complaint. So this is the Rebbe's response in the letter dated July 11th, 1960. 16th of Thomas, 5720. So this is the Rebbe's response. Everyone, of course, reacts and experiences in a way that is closest to him. Thus, for my part, I make the following observations. First, I see in this situation the degree of Jewish attachment that one finds in every Jew. For here is a person who has wandered off to a remote part of the world and has become so far removed, not only geographically, but also mentally, as to have no concept of what prayer is or what a house of God is. Yet one finds in him the Jewish spark, the Pintaliyid, or as the Abt Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, expressed it in the Tanya, he has a divine soul which is truly a part of God. This divine soul, the Rebbe continues in the letter, seeks expression as best as it can, and in the case of this particular Jew, 
It seeks expression in at least enabling other Jews to pray congregationally with a minion. He therefore goes out of his way to help them and at the same time to be counted with them. So here we see an example of the Rebbe's insight into the essential goodness of the innermost self of this Jew. And so this businessman is not an arrogant heretic mocking God and Jewish tradition. This Jew reading the newspaper is actually a holy Jew in exile responding to God's call in whatever way he knows how. And in this instance, in this instance the way he knows how is by participating in the minion, even though in his exile state he declines to actually pray. So that's story number one. Here's story number two. This is a story shared by... This is a, a, a story that's related to us. It happened to Shirley Chishlom. And excuse me if I'm uh, mispronouncing her name. But she was elected in 1968 to represent New York's 12th Congressional District which included her own neighborhood of Crown Heights. She made headlines as the first African-American woman elected to Congress. However, she soon found her congressional career stunted at a start by race-related politics. Bowing to political pressures from Southern politicians, the House leadership assigned the very urban Shirley Chilsham to the Agriculture Committee, a committee focused on the needs of rural America, a place where it was assumed she could have little influence. At the time, some in the New York media questioned the appointment and expressed doubt as to her ability to affect the legislative agenda. She was committed to taking care of the issues in the inner city, but her committee didn't have the power to do so. So she felt deeply depressed and angry. But then her office receives a phone call from the Rebbe's secretary. The Rebbe wants to see you. So during the meeting, the Rebbe told the congresswoman, I know you're very upset. Yes, she answered. I'm deeply insulted. What should I do? So the Rebbe told her something that stunned her. She said, he said, what a blessing God has given you. This country has so much surplus food and there are so many hungry people. You can use this gift that God gave you, which is your current position, to feed hungry people. Find a creative way to do it. Tasked with this charge, the congresswoman happened to meet Senator Bob Dole on her first day in Washington. He was looking for help for Midwestern farmers who were losing money on their crops. He said, Americans have started importing produce And as a result of those imports, our farmers are losing business. Now they have a huge surplus of unsold food, and we don't know what to do with it. Aha, the congresswoman thought. The Rebbe's advice. During the next few years, the congresswoman worked to expand the National Food Stamp Program, which allowed poor Americans to buy subsidized food from Midwestern farmers. Finally, in 1973, the Agriculture and Consumer Protection Act mandated that food stamps be made available in every jurisdiction in the United States. So she and Senator Doe went on to co-create the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, known as WIC, 
which today benefits millions of people each month. During her retirement party, the Congresswoman shared the following moving words. I owe all of this to a rabbi who was an optimist, who taught me that what you may think is a challenge is actually a gift from God. And if poor babies have milk and poor children have food today, it's because this rabbi in Crown Heights had vision. And let me go to story number three, an example again, where you see the amazing vision and positive outlook that the Rebbe had. On Shmini Atzeres, it's the, the festival at the end of Sukkot, in the year 1973, 5738, the Rebbe suffered a serious heart attack. Two days later, he insisted on giving a talk as he had done on that particular day for the previous 28 years. He never missed Talk, giving a talk on that day. So the doctor insisted, you must take care of your health. If not, there is a 25% chance of a relapse. The doctor asked if the Rebbe understood what he had said. Oh yes, the Rebbe said with a smile. I understand you very well. You said that even if I don't keep, take care of my health, which I assure you I will, there is a 75% chance that there won't be a relapse. So the Rebbe's positive paraphrasing of life might seem radical to some, but it is in fact a necessary perspective for all of us to engage into the best of our ability. We should really take this message to heart. If we apply some of the Rebbe's optimisms to our own lives, problems would be revealed as potentials for growth Enemies would be understood as teachers, and setbacks would be seen for what they really are, springboards to the next level. Scientists have coined the term negativity bias. It's a term that describes a common human phenomena. Essentially, the negativity bias is our tendency not only to register negative stimuli more readily, but also to dwell on these events. This concept is also known as positive-negative asymmetry, where neuroscientists have discovered that our brains have developed specialized circuits that register negative experiences immediately in our emotional memory so that we can learn from them. On the other hand, most positive experiences flow through the brain like water through a sieve. We experience them, enjoy them, and quickly forget them. Accordingly, we use much more brain space to scan and process negative experiences than positive ones because negative stimuli, if not registered and responded to accordingly, and appropriately, can be fatal. Out of necessity, the scientists explain, we have become masters of fixating on negative aspects of our lives and environments. This is only natural. Think about it. If you have nine positive experiences or interactions throughout a day, and one negative one, 
which are you most likely to dwell on at the end of the day? So, this is natural. But here's the problem. This bias has a terrible side effect. Since we are always on high alert for potential dangers, the positive aspects of our lives tend to get less attention. When we receive a compliment, for instance, we feel nice for a moment, but then the brain shifts back to a more defensive mode and we forget those warm positive feelings. We may therefore walk around in a low-level state of hyper-vigilance and anxiety. And as a result, we tend to blow our negative experiences out of proportion and fail to contextualize them within the positive aspects of our life that we have forgotten in moments of stress. So establishing a positive mindset is quite difficult as it goes against the grain of our established nature. And yet, we have to do everything we can to maintain a positive perspective in order to elevate the quality of our life. So here's a fun fact. According to our recent finding, people who have more positive and optimistic lens on life tend to live a full 11 to 15% longer than their pessimistic peers. So that means if someone is about is supposed to live 75 years old and he changes his positive out view then he added at minimum seven and a half years onto his life that's a staggering number the rebbe was well aware of the natural tendency of human consciousness to dwell on the negative nevertheless he constantly insisted that we could change our experience of life by making conscious and concerted efforts to focus and dwell on the positive. There was an individual who used to complain to the Rebbe about his life circumstances. So he once received the following penetrating response from the Rebbe. And I quote, In our world, everything is a mixture of good and bad. Human beings must choose with which aspects they will emphasize, contemplate, and pursue. How instructive is it that, the re- that our sages tell us that Adam was an ingrate and selfish. Even before he was banished from the Garden of Eden, while he was living a, gar- a life of paradise, he complained about his circumstances. And the rabbit doesn't go on to share the details, Um, But he was unthankful for the meat that he had. and The Rebbe doesn't reference it here. So let me continue the Rebbe's letter. On the other hand, there were Jewish men and women who thanked and blessed the Creator and recited the morning blessings while living through the most horrifying times in the German concentration camps. Ultimately, everyone's circumstances will be somewhere between these two extremes. My point in saying this is not to admonish you, it is simply to underscore the reality, which is, the type of lives that we live, whether full of satisfaction and meaning, or the opposite, depends in large measure on our willpower, which dictates whether we will focus on the positive or on the negative. We could be Adam living in paradise and focus on the negative, 
or we could be a Jew experiencing horrific times and focusing on the positive. In a rare personal disclosure to one of his uh, aides, his, the aide's name was Rabbi Baral Yunik. So the Rebbe once alluded to his focus on seeing things positively as stemming from his har- horroring past. He said that he told him as follows, I worked on myself to always look at things in a positive light. Otherwise, I could not have survived. This deceptively simple statement encapsulates the basic truth that living a life of positivity is a matter of choice, not circumstance, and derives from perspective and not personality. Over the next few weeks, we will highlight some of the key teachings and tools called from the Rebbe's guidance, which will help enable us, through dedication and commitment, to design our very own positivity bias. What's important to remember is that the Rebbe's optimistic and redemptive perspective on any and all issues, or what we're calling the Rebbe's positivity bias, were definitely not reflective of the Rebbe's incredibly challenging life circumstances. The Rebbe lived through waves of pogroms, the killing fields of World War I, a typhus epidemic, a refugee crisis, the persecution and forced exile of his father, whom he never saw again, the Bolshevik Revolution, the rise of communism, World War II, the brutal murder of his brother, grandmother, and numerous other relatives at the hands of the Nazis, as well as the Rebbe's life of childlessness. Add to this the fact that the Rebbe personally absorbed and carried the crushing pain of hundreds of thousands of individuals who sought him out for healing, comfort, love and acceptance, help, and sometimes simply a reason to live. So when the Rebbe says to, Re- to Rabbi Yunik, I worked on myself to always see things positively, it highlights to us that we too can all work to develop our own positive worldview and perspective, or positivity bias, through dedicated inner work. So thank you for joining us for this premiere episode, episode one, and I'll see you in episode two.